When the Centers for Medicaid Services, CMS, published its draft coverage determination regarding the need for further clinical trials for monoclonal antibodies to treat Alzheimer's disease, Sue Peshin was one of the first to leap into the fray, stating her opposition to the policy. Sue Peshin is president and CEO at the Alliance for Aging Research, the U.S.'s leading nonprofit organization dedicated to improving healthy aging for all. Sue has served in senior roles at the Alzheimer's Foundation of America and many other leading healthcare NGOs. She's been highly critical of current efforts to implement one-size-fits-all cost controls under Medicare that she sees as discriminatory to those 65 and older. Sue and I will discuss the implications of Vital Transformation's research and analysis of the CMS guidance, which was commissioned and funded by Biogen. Sue, it's great to see you. Hi, Dwayne. Thanks for having me. One of our rare two podcast thought leaders. (laughs) Thanks, Sue. (laughs) CMS has decided to put into place a specific proposal for extra evidence in order to validate a class of therapies treating Alzheimer's disease, specifically in amyloid beta. What exactly is this proposal and why do you think its potential impacts on your stakeholders are quite debilitating? Yeah, that's a great question, Dwayne. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has a tool that they use for national coverage determinations, and they've only used it 21 times out of all of the different types of medical products and services that they cover. And it's called Coverage with Evidence Development, or CED for short. And what it allows uh, the Medicare program to do is to say, unless you participate as a beneficiary in a particular clinical study or in a registry that we approve, the new type of treatment or service is not covered for you at all. So it's a very unique type of coverage tool in that it's basically mandating human subject research in order to get coverage or participation in a a registry. Both of these are already required by the Food and Drug Administration for the newest monoclonal antibody that was approved uh, back in June of last year. And so this is repetitive. It's going to compete with clinical trial recruitment for that clinical study. And it's going to widely ration care for tons of Medicare beneficiaries that would otherwise be able to be eligible for this new type of treatment. And it's been over 20 years since there's any type of Alzheimer's-related treatment that's been approved by the FDA. Now, this is specifically targeting monoclonal antibodies in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Are you concerned that this stops at the amyloid thesis, or do you think it's going to have other impacts on research beyond amyloid, just given the fact it's such a a stretch beyond what we would normally anticipate once FDA has approved a drug? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's going to have just impacts beyond amyloid in the Alzheimer's space. I think it's going to have impacts in R&D across the board for areas of unmet need, in particular rare diseases, and, you know, the accelerated approval type of uh, drugs where doctors have no other option. Either they have run out of options or there are no options in existence for a particular condition that their patient has. And this is an important uh, lever that the Food and Drug Administration has had and uses for these particular cases so that they can get 
a product out there and allow patients to have access to it. And what CMS is doing is they're cutting that program off at the knees. So it's not just going to impact Alzheimer's. And I do want to point out, you make a good point. This is for the entire class of the amyloid monoclonal antibody therapies. Yeah, it's not and just I targeting think, a specific drug. That's right. And I think the press has gotten that wrong. I think policymakers have gotten that wrong. And in some in some cases, I think they've done that deliberately because Biogen and, and their particular product has made for a good political villain um, in the fight for drug pricing, uh, which is tanking on the hill. And this is another way to kind of uh, take a swing at it. Yeah, and obviously... Part of the reason why it's tanking is some of the work we've done. We're very proud of we're, we're proud of very proud of the torpedoes we've thrown at some of these things because they're extremely damaging and they're not very well thought through. If we're looking at this from the standpoint of the small companies where eighty five percent of the innovation is coming right now, what do you think this is going to do if you're sitting in a company right now? Are you going to even invest in Alzheimer's at all? No, I think it completely uh, deflates that balloon of why would you take the time if accelerated approval is not going to be a potential option for you, if it looks like you make it all the way through FDA after years and years of trial, only to be faced with having to replicate those trials again, which is essentially what CMS is doing. And there's no real purpose to it. CMS has not been specific in any way as to what type of evidence is missing. They acknowledge that there is a phase four study that's going to be happening with this first drug and with any subsequent drug that go through accelerated approval or breakthrough therapy status. Uh, but then they still say they want more and reasonable and necessary is a different standard than safe and effective, but they won't be clear on what that actually means to them. And the whole purpose, as you know, behind accelerated approval is showing, uh, you know, is showing a signal of clinical meaningfulness. It's not actually having to show that yet, which is what the post-market study is for. And if patients have expressed an interest in wanting this, which they have very clearly to the FDA and to industry and in, within the community, then CMS needs to respect that. They do it for lots of other cancer drugs. They turned this back on CAR-T a couple of years ago when Absolutely. they attempted to do that. Yes, they did. And, you know, they have this paternalistic view of people with Alzheimer's disease for some reason as if, you know, they're not able as a community to have de some decision making. I think the broader issue is just that they are such a large community that it comes down to what's the actuarial, you know, risk for the agency. And they've just determined that it's way too many people and they have to ration care. So it's all about cost cutting. Exactly. And it's that actuarial problem that I think is the key one here, because as Harry Bowen, our consulting economist, as he recently said on the record, and he says what you're having now is sort of a, a two-department spat about one person not wanting to stay in their lane. It positions CMS in many ways as an HTA, a health technology assessor, which you and I and many of us have been saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, do you really want to go down this road? What is your particular concern about an HTA process being implemented in the United States? If CMS were able to initiate quality-based cost effectiveness, like most other HTAs in many of the European countries do, it's going to, across the board, be discriminatory towards people with disabilities, uh, people of older ages, people with multiple chronic conditions, simply because quality-based cost effectiveness 
uh, you know, judges their lives as worth less. And when you are calculating uh, how much a particular therapy is worth, the the um, threshold is much higher. The older you are, the sicker you are, the more disabled you are. And it becomes much harder to show cost-effectiveness for those therapies and much easier for the HTAs to say, uh-uh, we're not going to cover this. And haven't there been some court cases already where quality has been determined to be discriminatory under the U.S. system where it's not allowed? Yeah, I mean, under the last administration, there was an attempt with a most favored nation, the executive order, to do something very similar at a smaller level uh, for Part B drugs. But, you know, I think that CMS, I, in this particular case, I think CMS is really in an untenable position. I, I do feel for them uh, to a certain degree because I do think that we're caught in a sort of a perfect storm moment with everything that is going on with drug pricing. Um, I think that they know that this is on you know, uneven ground right now. There's been a lot of challenges around CED. Actually, HHS and their counsel's office put out a memo right before the administration turned over questioning the legality of CED. So I think they're setting themselves up for a court case around this coverage decision. And uh, I, I just think that they need to have more of a connection with the Food and Drug Administration and talk these things through as opposed to just sort of taking a swipe. And like you said, you know, creating this dynamic where it looks like CMS or HHS agencies are at war with each other. In April of uh, 2021, you and I co-authored an article where you said of the 6.2 million Americans age 65 and older living with Alzheimer's, one third are over 75 and another one third are over 85. From the standpoint of your stakeholders, what is going to be the impact of this burgeoning war of words and actual war of regulation between CMS and FDA? How does this impact potentially going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's now a message of you're a large population any other drugs that come forward that uh, are within the Part B program are, you know, up for grabs. And as I said, I think it's going to go beyond Alzheimer's disease to other types of disease areas. Um, I think it's important to understand that the study criteria that CMS has included in their draft uh, coverage determination would restrict participation by people with multiple chronic conditions, by people with Down syndrome who are, are at much increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. And it's it, it fascinating to me that they did that because, you know, the whole line is we want a representative population in the, in you know, of Medicare beneficiaries. And they're doing the exact thing that they're criticizing industry for. Additionally, you know, uh, communities of color are going to be almost wholesale sort of shut out from any type of participation in these. And one thing I want to point out is, you know, th this is a big business. Duke University actually runs the analysis for the TVT registry, which is the registry that is part of the coverage with evidence development registry for TAVR and TIR, which are treatments for heart valve disease. And they're also under coverage with evidence development. And that's a multi-million dollar endeavor over many years. So, you know, there's a lot of money to be made. That's why these are so high stake. It's not just about the drug companies. It's really about the hospital systems. So in this particular case, they're restricting it to 
hospital outpatient centers. It can occur in any other type of outpatient center. There's a whole process that goes on behind the scenes of who gets access to this, who runs the studies, who runs the registries, who's going to make money off of the whole thing. Yeah, and it's not like they haven't done a tremendous amount of work in the clinical study in the phase three that came to market. I mean, we did a big, deep dive on 45 clinical developments that are currently active in Alzheimer's disease. We published our research, which thankfully, Sue, you helped release last week. Thank you. One of the things that we found is, you know, if you're looking at the drugs that actually had clinical evidence to justify and warrant a phase three, you're talking 2,000 people in a five-year clinical trial with imaging for validation. I mean, this is an enormous amount of evidence that has been generated. And then to somewhat, I don't want to say capriciously, but just to somewhat almost arbitrarily to overrule the FDA and say, okay, that's not enough. You need to do more or turn it up to 11 metaphorically. What do they expect to get that they don't already have? I guess that to me seems odd. Yeah, they expect to get a smaller bill. (laughs) Fair enough. Part of the problem, though, with this ruling, which I've, I've also not heard a lot of people discuss is, okay, so let's say, fine let's just for the sake of argument say we're going to roll with this. Let's play devil's advocate. So we're going to launch a CMS under evidence clinical trial for reimbursement. What about the control arm? What then? Are we reimbursing a control arm for a drug that they're not receiving in order to not unblind it? I mean, the, the, the mind boggles at how they're going to do this. Right. I mean, that's a really good point. And we wrote about that in the comment that we submitted. It's This would really be unprecedented. I mean, typically when you think about an RCT, you think about a placebo-controlled arm. And, you know, to put people with Alzheimer's disease still during a pandemic in hospital outpatient settings, uh, then they potentially have to pay a 20% copayment. Uh, on something for, they're not for receiving. Part B, on uh, not being sure, but possibly paying for parking. I mean, the whole thing is just uh, nuts. And um, <laughs> they have not been clear about whether or not they would waive it. And if they had to waive it, they would have to waive it for both arms, which presents sort of another sort of cost issue of how the whole thing is going to be covered. But again, to your point, you're just talking about maybe max a few thousand people. Right. And there's thousands and thousands of others that just are transitioning every day from either MCI to mild or mild to moderate that are not going to be able to have access to this. And again, it's just so ironic. It's, you know, going to be left to the people that can pay the full price out of pocket. So again, you're restricting access, creating, continuing these health disparities that, you know, they have said that they're committed to getting rid of. We keep sort of laughing about the the bill and the cost and all this kind of stuff. I do just really want to put, put a fine point on the fact that this is so much is about controlling cost and how stigmatized this community is already. The way that this agency has acted over the last many months from the Medicare trustees report that they did in 2021 in anticipation of this approval and calling it out as a possible uh, cost impact on the program to the Part B premium announcement, which goes to all consumers and out in the news. And it was all over the newspaper that, but for this super, you know, this uh, super big group of patients that might get this new type of Alzheimer's treatment, your premium 
uh, would only be half as much because they were attributing the mm. increase in the Part B premium. And I just feel like they would never do that with cancer or or organ transplant or any other conditions that have much higher priced medical products and services associated with them. I mean, if we want to get personal about it, glioblastoma, yeah. right? I mean, it, you know, and and yet they feel okay about doing it with Alzheimer's disease. And I get it. You know, you, maybe you have a beef against the company or against the particular product or, you know, the way things have been rolled out. That's fine. Have your beef, but don't put it in a public document like that where all the beneficiaries are seeing it. It's really, it is inhumane. It's just completely inappropriate. And that should never happen again. I hope it never happens again to any other disease group area, any other group of patients, because this was unconscionable. And that's, I think, a lot of what's happening here with this coverage decision as well, is they're really testing the community. This is a community that has limited time on their hands, that is now using what time they have to advocate for this, knowing that many of them won't even benefit from it, but that people in the future will. But there's been a lot of othering that has occurred on the Hill over the last two administrations. I mean, we're seeing this a lot, this sort of staking out territories, us and them. And this is increasingly part of the dialectic in this town, which I find particularly vulgar and destructive because it really avoids solving problems. All you're doing is trying to carve out your own niche, which is going to give you an extra 5% or 10% in the opinion polling or on your Twitter feed, which I find reprehensible, Sue. I mm-hmm. couldn't agree more. But how do we get around it? I mean, Scott Gottlieb, in the, in the same article where Mark McClellan was very critical of this, Scott Gottlieb also pointed out that not only is this an attack on the FDA and, a, and some of the other decisions and the, you know, the geriatric community who is fighting, you know, many of them will have Alzheimer's, many of us will have Alzheimer's. But the reality is it's also an attack on accelerated approvals. Mm-hmm. From the standpoint of your community, what does this do to the accelerated approval pathway? I mean, it completely disincentivizes the accelerated approval pathway. Uh, Friends of Cancer Research, Us Against Alzheimer's, a whole bunch of the rare disease groups, we all joined together on a letter to CMS that was submitted along with you know, comments that were more specific to the coverage decision. But this was a different letter that was sort of more specific to the point that you're raising, Dwayne, which is, you know, th- this whole tool is so vital to groups that have no treatment options. There are so many, particularly in the rare disease community. And, you know, what's going to happen? This is going to set a precedent. Absolutely. And uh, give a message um, to not just the Medicare program, but also Medicaid. And there's been efforts in, you know, the Medicaid program with MACPAC uh, this past year in their annual report to Congress, where they said you ought to have different rebates for uh, the, when you're just through phase three versus when you haven't finished your confirmatory study yet. So basically, we ought to pay a cheaper price uh, prior to the confirmatory study. When those drugs were found to just make up less than 1% of the total bill, uh, for Medicaid uh, payment on um, prescription drugs. So it's, you know, a lot of this is, it's just very, very political. It's an easy thing to go after. ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Research, is a big fan of this. And it was something that was in a policy paper that they had put out 
uh, about a year or so ago, one of their policy recommendations. And there have been some articles in Health Affairs and other places around the use of coverage with evidence development uh, to do something similar to, to pharmaceuticals and, and new drugs that, in particular that are breakthrough. Um, so it's all just sort of going after the pipeline, and that's the purpose. It was funny. There was a British Medical Journal article that was funded by a lot of the activist organizations in Europe around the Gastein Health Conference in 2019. And the study was released, and what it showed was, wow, these drugs that have come through an accelerated approval fail. And I remember laughing when they rolled it out like it was this big unveil, ta-da moment. And I'm like, you know, that's actually half the rate um, that ones that don't go accelerated approval, that's actually twice as good. So mm-hmm. that means that these drugs actually have twice the probability of having approval and having effectiveness, which means they're actually doing a damn good job picking the accelerated approval pathway. It's only the drugs that are the most promising that actually have a very high rate of efficacy that are getting through this. Mm-hmm. And it, it was really ironic that the people who were protesting this didn't even understand the implications of the own research that they were touting at that time. It's not like willy-nilly, everybody gets a free catch-as-catch-can pass at this. That's right. I mean, they have specific guidelines around what they consider for a surrogate marker and what's acceptable in terms of going through that pathway. Janet Woodcock wrote, I thought, an excellent commentary. I think it was back in 2018 in Clinical Trials, the journal Clinical Trials. And it was specifically on expedited pathways. And the fact of the matter is, is you are trading a bit of uncertainty for access. Otherwise, you're missing the point. You know, and anybody who is opposed to this stuff, I never wish on them a fatal illness, a rare illness in them or in one of their loved ones, because then it's going to hit them right upside the head. That's what this is about. And they are super careful. You are you are right, Dwayne. I mean, they don't like, do you think they like all of this <laughs> microscope on them right now for this particular? And you can bet that this phase four trial is going to have eyes on it like nobody's business. It's, it's funny because you and I, we met as part of the uh, an initial IPI study in International Pricing Index. And we got to know each other and you got to know Joe Hemming, our, our U.S. business director. And, and, you know, we've always ended up falling on the same side of the issue on this, which is really great. One of the things we've heard, you and I, in this town, in our circulating and you know, traipsing about trying to fight these bad ideas, one of the things we hear regularly is, well, if we start you know, putting these barriers up against these expensive drugs and we start putting pricing recommendations in and we start you know, increasing the evidence bar for whatever X, Y, or Z reason, it doesn't matter because it's going to force the companies to focus on only those things that we really need from an innovation standpoint. So we're only going to get Alzheimer's or Parkinson's drugs. Is that, what's your opinion of that? No, it's actually the exact opposite. And I know you and uh, and other researchers in the field, too, have validated this again and again and again. They're going to go for the stuff that is low-hanging fruit, that yeah. is going to make the money that are, you know, they complain about, uh, we all talk about Me Too drugs. Me Too drugs are where the money is, right? So you want to get a piece of the pies that are available. And the ones that are harder to reach those require excess investment. That's what you you rely on your bread and butter in order to fund those types of programs. You know, we've seen an enormous drop 
since 2009 in the research in the neurological pathway. It dropped by 50% between 2009 and 2014. The trend in Alzheimer's disease in our research in the data set we looked at, we looked at 551 clinical trials since 1996, and we've seen this continuing halving of the amount of research every decade. So it drops by 50% every 10 years. So it's, again, Jack Scannell's Eroom's Law, Moore's Law in Reverse played out in, in real time. It seems these attacks keep coming left, right, center, and sideways every which way from Sunday we can possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. They're not going away. What recommendation specifically related to this CMS proposal, what should they do instead? What would be a remedy to this current impasse we find ourselves in? Yeah, I mean, I think they need to follow the example of what they did for CAR-T. Uh, two years ago, when they uh, originally proposed coverage with evidence development for CAR T therapies, and you know they heard from the community. Granted, uh, I will you know say that the community was a lot more <laughs> together than there is controversy here, as there has been for a long time on the amyloid theory. Um, but uh, they recognized a lot of the same things that there is a post market study going on. They respected the FDA's decision. I mean, you know, you you should go back and and look at their final decision. And we, we tried to point that out in our own comments. Sort of follow what you've said previously. You're setting an entire new precedent here. And I think that is part of the intention. But, you know, calling them on that to say, why was it okay in this particular space? And now you're doing something entirely different again. You're good at reading the music in town. Where does this end up? I do think the clinical study is really backing them into a corner, and I think they're going to have to reevaluate that. I think it's up in the air about whether or not they'll do some type of a CED-mandated registry. We are pushing to not have that because, again, that would limit access significantly. As I said before, it creates this whole new sort of industry around it that is completely unnecessary when there's real-world study that's already planned. Um, But we may see something like that, like kind of a variation on the theme. And, you know, I just think the advocacy community way beyond Alzheimer's, because this is not just about Alzheimer's. Absolutely not. Needs to, you know, uh, just speak as loudly as possible, because we are going to be circling back later this year to the user fee uh, wraparound legislation <laughs> and the attacks on accelerated approval. That Robert so, Califf is committed to. Yes, yeah. yes. So this is this is... It's going to be another interesting year. <laughs> well, Sue, here's to you and I seeing each other for coffee probably regularly every time <laughs> I'm in D.C. And it's always a pleasure seeing you, Sue. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me, Dwayne.